Hey everybody, this is Fight Talk and this is Steven Jensen and this episode of Fight Talk will be part one of my interview with Scotty Riggs. Scotty Riggs is a former ECW and WCW wrestler who I grew up watching and was a really big fan of. We talk a bit about him growing up as a fan in this episode. We also talk about his training, his first match in WCW against Steve Austin, and a whole lot more. So please uh, sit back, relax, and enjoy the first part of my conversation with Scotty Riggs. Hello, is this Mr. Scotty Riggs? Steven. Scotty, how's it going, man? Doing great. I really appreciate you taking some time to talk to me, man. I'm a real big fan. I really appreciate this. And just to kind of lay kind of a little bit of a background, I've been a professional wrestling fan as long as I can remember. And I started watching back in 1995. I was a fan of WCW. I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. WCW was a huge deal. Um, I, I know Cody Rhodes a little bit from high school, so I had the opportunity to meet Dusty back in the day and and just always was such a big fan of all those guys. And one of my favorite tag teams, uh, they got formed in the summer of 1995, it was called the American Males. It was Scotty Riggs and uh, Marcus Bagwell, who was later known as Buff. And on the line, I've got Scotty Riggs. Uh, Scotty, what have you been up to, man? What, what, do you, uh, what have you been up to? Anything you want to tell your fans about what you've been doing uh, nowadays? Uh, pretty much just uh, been retired. Um, luckily, took care of a few things way back when. Uh, made good investments and just took care of myself financially to a point where right now I'm just retired and made a few business ventures where I'm living on uh, Hilton Head Island. Okay. And um, just enjoying life as a, as a beach bum, basically. There you go. Good deal. Yeah, you know, I was born and raised in Savannah, Georgia. So I kind of grew up on um, the precursor of uh, WCW, the Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling, Georgia Championship Wrestling, you know, sanctioned by the NWA, and used to go to Savannah Civic Center when I was a kid with my dad. Every other Sunday, they'd have the big matches here. So when I was growing up, it was around 75, 76, the first time my dad took me to matches, I was already meeting guys like Ric Flair, Sam Ricky Steamboat, Blackjack Mulligan, the Anderson Brothers, uh, Matt Superstar, uh, just a lot of the talent that, that came out. I even saw Andre the Giant once when I was a little kid, see this big massive guy walking around was uh, unforgettable, basically. Oh, wow. And the funniest thing in the world, I've never told Rick this, but the funniest thing in the world is when I was like, I guess I'd be 10 years old, me and my dad would get ringside seats in the good guy's corner. He's like, row, is row A, seat one and two. I guess you would call it, would be in the good guy's corner. And one of the police officers used to always work security for the wrestling matches. Lived right around the corner from us. So he allowed me to get the wrestlers ring jackets and robes and stuff like that and take them to the back. So for me, as a 10-year-old kid, I was a hog heaven, you know. And one of the first times I got to do it, I got the whole way of Ric Flair's robes. Oh, wow. And take it to the back. And little did we know, 20 years later, um, I'd be in the ring wrestling him. Oh, man, that must have been a hell of an experience. Well, you know, it's just, it's a small world, but I wouldn't want to paint it. But, you know, it's it's just one of those things where, you know, you grew up a fan, you 
for sure dream. Uh, and just through our hard work, you know, it, it happens, you know. And so that's just one of the little story to kind of start off with. You know, like you said, you grew up with WCW fam. I was a precursor to what WCW was, you know. Uh, like I said, the George Championship Wrestling, Middle Atlantic was the NWA. I never got into the WWF stuff at the time of WWF. Um, kind of got into that because once a month when I was growing up, we get the uh, USA Network. It would turn into one Monday, the first or second Monday of the month, it would become the uh, Master Square Garden Network. And we get like a two-hour show uh, that was either taped or, or whatever from Madison Square Garden. And that's when they had Bruno Wrestling Forum, they had Backlund, Superstar Billy Graham. They had some really good, strong wrestling action on them. Sure. But by the time I reached high school and stuff like that, they were all into the cartoon characters. They had great talent, but they were all doing the cartoon characters. Right. Like the Repo Man and Nails and and just all these these goofy characters that could do great wrestling matches, but they had doing all the all, all this cartoonish stuff. And I never got into that part of it. Never got. I was never. Uh, uh, I, I, I think this is why Hogan bought me on Twitter. But I was never a Hulk Hogan fan. I've never been ashamed to say I wasn't a fan. I mean, he's a good guy. Never had a beer with him. Never really hung out with him. Said hello to him a bunch at, at shows and stuff. But but the point was, I was never a Hulk Hogan fan. Just not like the the same uh, what you want to call it the, uh, the same recipe for a match where you know you do a little bit of this, do a little bit of that, get beat down on, get beat down on, make a little comeback, get beat down on, then do the finger wag at the guy to make you come back because you're hooking up. Right. Never got into that. I got into the Rick Flair, Ricky Steamboat uh, matches where it was you know it was a human chess match. I got into the Anderson brothers doing tag team matches where they were looking like they were brutalizing you and cutting you off from making a tag. You know, th- things that, that, that made me go, wow, this is believable, you know, what they're doing. You know, that's what got me into it, not the cartoon stuff that they think all the kids buy into. You know, um, a lot of kids probably do buy into that. But at the time when I was growing up, I didn't. I bought into the realism. Basically because I was playing sports at the time, too. I was playing football, basketball, baseball. And so I was always involved in the uh, the sport mindset of it. Sure, sure. How how long did you live in Savannah, if you don't mind me asking? Was it was it quite a while? I was born and raised there. Um, so pretty much up until nineteen eighty six. Uh, actually, I graduated high school in eighty five. I took a year off between high school and college to uh, work a little bit. And because uh, I was only offered a partial scholarship coming out of uh, high school, uh, so I so I took a few months off, and ended up going into college uh, into the winter of uh, um, of eighty. I want to eighty six. Yeah, went into winter of eighty six and joined the winter workout programs with the team, and ended up uh, playing uh, college football in West Georgia. So I did, I, I grew up in Savannah, born and raised and went to West Georgia College, which is in Carrollton, which is outside of Atlanta. Yeah, yes, sir. I'm familiar. I uh, I actually graduated from Georgia Southern down there in Statesboro. I dated a girl that went to Georgia Southern. There you go, small uh, world. For about a year and a half. Yeah, so I'm, I'm actually a bit familiar with Savannah. Um, I've been there for a few St. Paddy's Days. It's always a huge thing down there. I'd say that was, that's a big party. That's, 
Yes, sir. I like the uh, the uh, the atmosphere. Absolutely, I love the uh, the open container law up there. You can go kind of bar to bar with the to go cup and walk around. Uh, yeah, as long as they give you a to go cup. Right. It has, to be one of, it has to be a to go cup. You just couldn't walk out with a mug in your hand. Right. Right. Yes, sir. Good deal. Good deal. Um, well, that being said, uh, I'm going to kind of just kind of call this as I'm as I'm going. I'm going to go a little off off script of, of the guys you mentioned. Uh, who are, who would you consider some of your favorite workers? Uh, being a, a fan of Flair and some of the more kind of old school, uh, more uh, more performance do you mean based. Up or do you mean um, what? In the ring with? Once once you were in the business. The, once you were in the business, we'll say, who did you see um, when you were coming up as a wrestler that you really kind of uh, really really respected or really maybe a moder- um kind of materialized your style based on? Um, I mean, in full honesty, when I wrestled, uh, especially when I was a baby face, you know, when I was a good guy, what you want to call when we were in the males especially, you watched a lot of what I did, and I did a lot of it when I was in Memphis, too, because um, I spent eight months in Memphis uh, wrestling for Jerry Lawler at USWA, and I'm going there because of uh, Arn Anderson, Okay. who, uh, just, just to get briefly into what you're saying, because it'll make sense, when I was, when I first started off in WCW, I was pretty much on a nightly basis, which was back in 90, 90 early 94. Okay. And we're just doing basically TVs. They saw me doing really good on TVs. Um, Jody Hamilton, who was a mass assassin, was running the power plant at the time, saw me. Uh, I went and did a match with, with Diamond Dallas Page. And me and Page met at, uh, at Single Lexus Gym. There's going to be a lot of names up in here just because of the atmosphere we were in. It was the location we were in. And this is, just, I met I met I met DDP at Single Extra Gym Management Fitness because we were working out there, and they were all going down to Jonesboro, which was on the south side of Atlanta, where uh, um, that's where your school was, and like like it's like it's like an hour drive, hour and a half drive, you get traffic, and it's really a pain in the ass to get down there. So uh, a friend of mine that was running some shows had a, had a karate school and had a ring in the back of the garage school, a 16 by 16 foot ring. So I told Paige about it. He came by and checked it out. I was like, dude, you know, he talked to uh, Randy, the guy who owned the, owned the, the garage school, saying, hey, would you mind a couple of us get by and train here? And basically had uh, Steve Riegel, you know, William Riegel now, whatever oh, you yeah. call him, sure. uh, Brad Armstrong, mm-hmm. and Jake Snake Roberts came yeah. in. And, yeah. that's, and I was kind of like the... Uh, they were all working with Paige pretty much, helping him to find his character and, and moves and stuff. And I was pretty much the the dummy, the tackling dummy, the the the, the potatoes got thrown around <laughs> with all the moves. Gotcha. But they also, as a, a I guess as a token to be nice, they saw I had some ability, so they didn't need me up. They actually worked with me. When you got a guy like Steve Regal, Brad Armstrong, and Jake Steg Roberts, I mean, three guys, psychology-wise, technique-wise, anything else, working with you, even if you're just sitting there at the front of the wall, you can't help but learn. And so I kind of tried to soak up everything I could. And I patterned, uh, because I was, like I said, I was a big 
Steamboat, especially the baby face. Right. I patterned a lot of my selling techniques of uh, whether it was a heel or a face, just how to react to actually getting hit with a punch, to a kick, to a move, how you would sell your back. And you get the little, you know, even the little things you try to get the most out of. So I really patterned a lot of my stuff after Ricky Steamboat. And that was the one thing that, that really caught on with me was, um, and it was just all instinct in my mind of what I what I saw when a punch really did somebody or an uppercut or a drop kick or a slam, and they were all like, you know, how long have you been training? Oh, you know, I've been dude, I've been doing stuff for about a year. And they all couldn't believe it. And so when we finally put a match together, me and Paige did. We went down and did it for Jody Jody Hamilton down at the school, and that's how I got my uh, my break in with WCW basically. Uh, they put me in matches, and you know, you were talking about Dusty. Dusty was the booker then, right? For WCW, and he put me in one match with uh, with Steve Austin. He was stunning Steve. Yeah, long blonde hair. And, yeah, yeah. We we had, we had a Saturday match. I was you know uh, Saturday night show. It was supposed to be Sam Houston in the match. Sam wasn't wasn't going to make it. Jody Hamilton had me there, knew I could work. So Jody put me in there. Nobody else had faith in me to do an eight-minute match with Austin. Normally, with something like that, you know, a guy they don't know, it'd be about three to four minutes squash. But they had eight minutes set aside for a match with Austin. So Austin pulled the rib of all ribs on me, comes up, hey, kid, can you work the head? Yeah. da 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 walks away. About ten minutes later, kid, you know how to work your arm? da 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 walks away. Hey, can you work the leg? Uh, you know, we're going through all up and down the body parts. Right. What I can do, what I can't do. And he goes, okay, kid, just listen to me out there. And walks away from me. Didn't say anything else. I'm sitting back going, I got eight minutes for this guy. And then all of a sudden the rib comes around. Okay, uh, Sam's going to be here. Scott, we don't need you. Okay. Oh, wow. You know? <laughs> then comes around five minutes later. Scott, get, you got your boots on. Let's go. We're up. <laughs> what? You're working. You know, so they're ripping me the whole time, trying to mess with me a little bit. But uh, I went out there, and Steve made me look like I was a 10-year veteran. That's how good he was at that time. That was 94-ish. So this was way before he even hit Stone Cold era. Sure. But he was so good even then. Had a great match. Nick Patrick was the referee. All right. And even Nick was in there going, damn, good, you look good, you look good, you know, just... Pumped me up. I was so blowed up out there, those ridiculous. But he put me over strong. And even Steve at the end of the match told me, he goes, he goes dude, you sell incredibly well. He goes, he goes, not, you just don't sit there selling like flat or, or do whatever. He goes, you, you, your body language is so good. I got that from watching Steamboat as a kid. So I patterned a lot of my stuff, whether it was taking a punch, giving a punch, whatever, to, to, to use the, uh, your, your body language to make a fan that's a hundred rows back see what you're doing through your body language. You know, that's that's the one thing I learned and it's one thing that, you know, like I said before, working with a little bit with Brad Armstrong and Regal and those guys, they kept saying, you know, use your body language, use your, the twisting your body in motion and stuff. So, I also remember coming back from that match and Dusty Rhodes coming to me and going, kid, kid, that was amazing. I knew the finish, baby. I gave the finish, baby. I knew the stunner was coming. But when you fought Packerson at the end, I thought that was going to be the one, two, three. You had me, baby, dog. <laughs> and so, 
you know, in my eyes, I was like, wow, you know, he goes, they, they really said they were all, all into my match. Awesome. And so, basically, after that, I mean, that one match kind of gave me a little credibility, at least in the Booker's eyes, to where um, I would get, get put in better matches with guys. I was still doing a favor, but was getting put in better matches where you're sitting after you, you know, get, get stepped on like a bug. And most of the time, I was getting put in dark matches with guys like Rick Rogers or Bobby Parker, State Patrol, and I would get little quick wins. You know, we would do quick things, quick eight minute match, whatever you do, or deck changes or whatever, mm-hmm. and would get me in there. And so, basically, not too long after that is when uh, Arn Anderson came up to me. He said, "Kid, you gotta get out of here." I was like, "What?" You know, I was working some house shows, not a lot, probably about maybe three to five house shows a month, which was making, you know, two fifty for the house shows, being open to match, you know, go out there doing, you know, do a little wrestling match for folks, but nobody knew who it was. Doing the TVs, and so I was wrestling probably a good ten to fifteen times a month just for WCW doing TVs and doing some house shows, let alone doing some independence on the way too. So I was making decent money in a sense at the time, and so but Arn told me I needed to get out because Eric Bischoff is about to take over the book. He's about to do some things here, and you're going to get stuck uh, under a ceiling and be seen as this guy who's here to put guys over, and you'll never get out of here. Oh, I see. So, unbeknownst to, to, to what was going on in my mind, I'm sitting there going, "Wow, this kind of sucks." So I'm doing good; they like me, but they're telling me to leave. And not too long after that, I was actually uh, driving Jacob Snake to some shows uh, uh, that we were, we were both on. We both lived in Atlanta at the time, and he was living with Paige off the lawn. So I was actually driving Jake to some shows here and there. We were on a Thanksgiving night show in Warner Robins, Georgia, that Jerry Waller was on. And I was telling Jake about what Arn told me. So we get to the show there, and Jake talks to Jerry. Jerry watches my match and comes up to me after my match and says, hey, kid, uh, would you want to come, you know, wrestle USWA? And, of course, I knew what USWA was. You know, I knew about the territory and everything. I was like, yeah, hell yeah. He goes, well, all I can promise you is experience and exposure. You'll make 40 bucks a night. You'll wrestle five, six nights a week. Double shot on Saturday. But you only make it 40 bucks a day. And, but you'll get experience and exposure you won't get anywhere else. So I was like, uh, okay. And so that's basically what I did. I was, he goes, I'll call you, or I'll have Randy Hale call you. First of the year, this is November. So he said, I'll have Randy Hale call you first of the year and give you a start date. And so basically he called me up and said my starting date was January 14th. be channel five in Memphis. And so basically... Uh, this is a long, drawn-out way of saying that Ricky Steamboat was basically the pattern that got me noticed by being able to sell well, have good fiery comebacks, and everything else that got me over as a baby face with these guys. And the eight months I spent in Memphis got me ready to be Bagwell's partner when I came into WCW at that time. Wow, that's awesome. Um so much information kind of, there. A, kind of a long way to answer your question. Hey, that's... There's, there's, some, there's some fun detail in there that, you know, of how wacky everything connected with my life, you know, 
doing this stuff with DDP and, and having Paige or uh, having Jake Snake there, and then months later after, you know, that match got me over with the office, the match with Austin got me over with the office a little bit, and then things changing, then traveling with Jake, here's another cool ingredient who, you know, taught me little ins and outs of using my body language, using stuff like that to get better. So it was just, you know, one of those little weird types of your life where you go, wow, that works, that makes sense, this is what happened, this interconnects. I'll let you know that, you know, basically I was a rookie Simo fan growing up as a baby face and loved the Anderson brothers, so they were vicious heels. Yeah, I there there's not much you, you can't find a better babyface out there than Ricky Steamboat. That guy was so good, and so many guys will tell you that they they patterned their careers after his. As far as I'm going to jump around a little bit, but as far as like learning to sell, uh, kind of through Steamboat and and being able to have that access to a guy with like the ring psychology of a Jake the Snake Roberts. Um, I'm I'm shooting way past where I was wanted to start with this, but when when you had the eye patch. I mean, is does something like that? Does there's something that like Jake the Snake teach you psychology wise? Does that come kind of come into play when you got kind of a was that a gimmick? Were you really injured? Because I've heard you were injured for real when you were in that eye patch. Well, when we when, when we first did the uh, the idea that it wasn't to, to be injured, but just when my face actually ended up hitting the uh, chair, there was a, a little big bit of a bruise across the face, across the eye, and so basically what happened was. Um, I was getting some light sensitivity to the bright TV lights and stuff like that. So we wanted to use it as a gimmick, but then it became a gimmick as an out of uh, or a persona, whatever you want to call it, guy patch. Right. It became um, almost out of uh, hiccups here for a reason, for some reason. But it basically came out of um, we used something out of necessity. It worked, you know, um, and so it ended up, and so basically, you know, for truth, I was legally blind in the eye because I had to put an opaque contact lens in, which means it's a white lens, but no light can penetrate it. You can't see out of it. So I had the lens in there to protect the eye from the lights because I was getting headaches from the bright lights. So I had that lens in there that I had the eye patch on too. So I was completely legally blind in that eye. Oh, wow. And that was the thing. That that was from if I remember correctly that that was Raven's spot right where he'd keep the the chair would be open and he dropped toehold to do face first yeah, yeah. yeah that was brutal. What, what we wanted to do actually psychology wise was this was Raven's first time up there they wanted him I was a pretty boy they wanted to mangle a pretty guy and injure him and just leave him there for 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 dead basically. Like, he didn't care, and that was this vicious Raven, and it's, it was a whole lot of yards. But me and Raven have been friends since we really met on the Independence back in maybe 92 when I first started. A few shows, the guy ran around Georgia and Tennessee area. We had to be on the same show, and so we were just chat. Not like we were bosom buddies or anything, but, you know, we were, we'd become friends, and, I mean, I love Raven to death. He's a great guy and everything, but... Um, we didn't take any warm, soapy showers together at the time. Sure. So, um, and so when, when he came into WCW and stuff like that, it was just, it was going to be something that uh, he was slowly drawing guys to be into the flock and everything. And it kind of turned into, or kind of morphed into me, you know, not just joining the flock, because uh, we didn't want retreads. 
but the way, because he didn't want guys who already did stuff for one like you guys, like, like Lodi came out of the, uh, the training school. He was young, green, very green, but had a impact about him with personality. Right. Stick Boy came out of school, nobody knew who he was, had great talent to do it. I mean, he, he could have been incredible if he hadn't had a few injuries towards him, towards the end of his thing, and if they could have kept the flock a little bit longer to let him develop, um, he would have been a lot better. Uh, Saturn they brought in, uh, you know, it was a good tie for him with ECW uh, for the flock, and Stevie was there for a bit. They had a little bit of a, of a falling out where things just didn't work. Stevie left. Kidman came in. He didn't really want Kidman being a retread, but Kidman changed his entire look. I came about basically because of the the eye injury was supposed to be just a one-off kind of thing where he injured the eye, and then we, we made it a storyline. It just kind of progressed naturally to where it became a storyline to where you know, he wanted me to keep joining him and stuff like that. And because of the eye patch, and because of the eye patch, I became part of the look. I, I went from being this, you know, the American male, clean, pretty boy, into this completely, you know, anti-social look what society did to me. You know, it took my vision away. You know, it was uh, the psychology behind Look at the look at what, you know, all my friends left me and all this stuff. And so... It just factored into being a good part of the story. If I would have stayed looking at even the least bit nice, you know, it wouldn't have ever worked. But because of the eye patch and everything, it, it changed my persona so much. You know, where everyone was like, cool, let's run with it. And I know he used to trip out because they even Scott Hall told me, and, and see, I never spoke with Jake during that time because he was with our company at the time. He was with WBF, WWE, whatever we call him. He's with the other companies. I remember we got to talk in the uh, psychology with them. But they were like, you know, after we had started doing it for a bit, I just, to me, I just had the athletic ability to be able to, without one eye, not stumble and fumble and bumble. Right, the depth perception's got to be way off with just one eye, right? My depth perception, I didn't have any. And even Raven had said, uh, he goes, I don't know how you do this. And I said, I don't know how I'm doing it. He goes, man, I'd, I'd be stumbling, fumbling. You know, I'd be missing stuff. I'd be hitting guys for real. And, of course, every now and then I did. I just blame it on the eye. But, <laughs> um, you know, it just happened to where just I got used to it. And where does it sound like I used to it? But Scott Hall was telling me, he goes, dude, I would have been stumbling. I would have worked a gimmick. But the whole thing was is that mentality would have worked good for a little bit. Um, if if you would work the 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 blind gimmick for a short period of time, and they got your vision back, it would have been fine. But that was also a mentality of the WWF stuff. We could go do a clown match almost, basically. So it wasn't going to be a serious character. You could do the stumble, fumble, bumble around stuff for a little bit. But being you know being the especially the, the baby face. You can really work it. That's psychology. Being the heel, you can't really stumble and fumble. Right. I mean, Pierre Olette, I think is what his name is, one of the, one of the cool Beckers. Guy with Rizzo for a while. I can't remember what his, what his gimmick was actually at the time, but he had a glass eye. 
and wore the eye patch. He wore a patch also and did a pirate type gimmick. Right. Um, as the Canadians, or I think that's what they were called in WCW. Um, but he actually legit wore one also, but it never really fumbled him because he was a heel. You can't stumble and fumble and be mean. You know, it didn't work that way. As a baby face, it could have worked. As a heel, it didn't. So you got to you got to know your character also to whether or not it's the cause you'll work with it. You don't want to draw the sympathy or the empathy empathy of the fans when you're trying to get them be pissed at you. Right. Oh man! So, but that's what the iPad actually just became. You know, it, it actually it, it was a gimmick I wanted to keep too. I liked the, I liked the look. It was something that was completely different. And that was the way the reason Raven Savannah got over so strong is you made it work because you know, it actually became a strong point of who you were. Now, nobody is, else is really doing it. Was there any reason you didn't bring that over into ECW, or were you, were you not allowed to, or was there any reason for that? Um, to be honest with you, when they decided to break up the flock, it was not something that we decided to do. It was something that they just said, we're going to break all up now. Like, it's like, you know, they're, they're like, the timing is run. We're going to break this thing up. And, and to be honest with you, we were getting such great heat that we were actually drowning out the NWO when it came to heat, actually legit heat. We would sit in the front row. They hated us sitting in the front row. Oh, yeah. I remember. They didn't like it at all. We sat in the front row. We were getting legit heat. We were getting people that were pissed off at us, throwing stuff at us. We got a couple of tussles, leaving the building, going through the crowd a couple of times, so we had to change our routine. By the time we were jumping Benoit and DP and guys like that, the guys the fans loved, we were getting legit serious heat. And the NWO were the cool heels. You know, they wanted to have heat, but they didn't want to be hated. They wanted some merch, but have heat. Right. We didn't have merch. You know, we had some things here and there. I think Raven had a shirt. They had an all shirt for the whole flock type thing, but not really specifically for the flock. But we were getting such great heat. And why they split us up is. For truly, from what I still know and still remember, was nothing that we did wrong. It was because we were doing too much right. Right. Gotcha. And and so, basically, I wanted to keep the eye patch. I went and sat down with Terry Taylor, who was um, with a, with a part of the booking committee, and I had heat with him from when I was one of the American Males. I was stealing chicks from him on the road. But... <laughs> uh, yeah, I had, I had major heat with all kind of guys for, you know, having the chicks that they normally hook up with in certain towns all of a sudden flaunting all over me. Right, there you go. But, uh, dude, I couldn't help it. I'm a good motherfucker. Yeah, man, and you had, I mean... I mean me handsome devil all the time. Yeah, man, absolutely. And, you know, and not, not to mention, you had the best theme song of all time is the American Males. I mean, I got to bring that up at some point during oh, dude, this. Dude, it, it's actually in the top five worst. <laughs> But, I mean, actually, I saw a list, I think it was of the top ten, and we were in the top five. That was <laughs> one of the worst songs. But the thing is, is it's still known today. Yes. Because of its simplicity and because of its cheesiness. Yeah. It is still known today. Oh, I still remember it. I, I mean, that was one of the first songs I ever heard oh, as a fan yeah. of pro wrestling. You know? But, I mean, but the, the, the thing with, the, like, with Terry Taylor, I had heat with him for, for two reasons. One was a chick. And once uh, we were coming back from Vegas, from uh, 
were all in a red eye. And Terry's were in the exit row, the middle exit row, in the middle of playing by the wings, with Terry Kimmer at the window. I'm in the middle seat. J.J. Dillon is in the aisle seat. Okay. On a red eye flight from Vegas. And I'm sitting there going, this is going to suck so bad being between those two guys. And about that time, the stewardess comes up. Mr. Riggs, uh, did you get your bag? You went up to the first class? <laughs> sure. Boing. I pop up. Got my bag. Terry John's like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. I should be ahead of him. I've, I've been a gold card member longer. But he went off to this big spiel. JJ just gives us this big gas of like, no way. And I'm like, and Stuart is like, excuse me, sir, his name is on the list. He's next. I should be a Terry Sarsbitch in a fit. And I said, guys, I'll see you later. And I don't even look back. And he walked up there and said, man, can I get a course like, please? Oh, sure, no problem, sir. It'll be, it'll be, uh, I'll have it for you at your, uh, at your seat. And I just walked on up. And from that point on, I had major heat with Terry. Gotcha. And, again, it was not for anything I did. It was for, you know, how good I did it. Gotcha. I was just being me. I mean, dude, you think about it. You know, one of those was go, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, it's 
a dark brown, you know, almost not not the dude on the shits look, but it was going to be a dark brown leather jacket that I picked up in Sturgis at, at the pay-per-view we were at there that year. Um, I picked up a leather jacket there, a brown leather jacket, um, you know, a biker's jacket that I had to look for and everything else. And picked up some pants there and stuff, because I was thinking of things for the future with what could go on with the gimmick. But they just didn't want me to do it. So, uh, that's when the mirror came along. Gotcha. So, you know, I did the mirror gimmick, and they actually, you know, they, they kind of gave me the idea of, uh, of doing something with the mirror. And But how to do it was my idea. It was, was however I want to incorporate it, to do something with the mirror so I could be a narcissist. And so that's when we did the mirror thing. Gotcha. So I... I'm going to jump back just real quick. So before all of this, for everybody listening. Jump, um, jump, jump around, jump, jump. <laughs> jump, jump, yes, sir. Um, I, when you were uh, teaming with, uh, with Marcus Bagwell as the American Males, um, I remember you guys, when you guys won the, the WCW Championship, uh, the tag team titles from the Harlem Heat. Like, I still remember that. And I remember it being a pretty short title reign. I want to say it, it didn't last but maybe a week or so. But working, I know you worked with those guys quite a bit. Um, do you have any thoughts on working with, with Booker T and Stevie Ray back then? Yeah, I loved working with them. Um, we, we had really just good chemistry with them. Um, Marcus had worked with a bunch in the first place uh, with Stars and Stripes and, and that scenario with them. So he knew them a little bit. And they were familiar with them, and so... There's certain there's certain guys, certain teams you get in the ring with, and you can have almost an instant chemistry with, an instant, you know, uh, trust factor in what you're doing. I just remember that tag match when he did the leg, the clothesline with the leg. However, it's been a Rudy's, what do you call it now, but uh, when he caught me with that leg, saying, it looked like he took my head off. And... I mean, I could, I could still close my eyes and picture when, it, when Stevie Ray tagged Booker, or Booker tagged him, Stevie shoots me off the ropes. I hit the ropes, come back, and here comes that flying leg at me, and it looks like it takes my head off, but I, I actually timed it so well, it didn't even touch me. Oh, nice. So it looked like it killed me. And I can still remember Sherry Pops, she was on the outside, got rest her soul. Right. She jumped up, went nuts. Put her Stevie on the outside, went, whoa! Marcus went, ah! Nick Patrick went, ah! And she wrote, ah! So because of that one reaction, that spot right there, we had an instant, instant like, hey, we're all going to work well together. Because that one move just made us all quick. Taking that one move right for him. And it just worked out well. I always had great matches with him. And the funny thing is, uh, in, in TV time, we held the belts for a few months. And actual, because WCW was really, really bad at the time of taping, of doing all their syndicated shows. We were going to Orlando for two weeks, and we taped three months of TV down in Orlando for, two, for the two syndicated shows for a worldwide main event. Right. And so they'd have all these generic matches in a, in a sense can. And we were actually the world tag team champions 
uh, after we'd already taped some uh, some syndicated shows, so they were announcing us at the tag team camps without even having the belts. Gotcha. Because the, the night show was live, there were other stuff that we had taped already that didn't fit with what we did on the live night show show. And so we actually held the belts for a few months. We always wrestled uh, the dark match on Nitro because we had already, in a sense, had a Saturday night TV taping. But we actually did the match twice um, uh, just to, to, to mess with the dirt sheets. I guess is what they were doing. I don't know. But they had us wrestle one week and lost them. Then we came back two weeks later and lost them again. Sometime, or a week later and lost them again. But yeah, the actual date, the time we actually won them, the show they taped was like nine days. Which is what the WCW's fault for not being, you know, they, they hot shotted the belts to us. And instead of doing things, you know, if they had planned on keeping the belts on us for two months, whatever it was, why not lose them back on the Nitro instead of losing them on Saturday night? They were also trying to struggle to keep Saturday Night Show relevant going up against the live Nitro now. So they had to lose the belt on the Nitro, or on the, on the uh, Saturday Show. Gotcha. So that's how kind of goofy that company was at the time. I mean, they still didn't have a great plan or a great scheme of how they're making everything work. Right, so when when you split that was with... 95. Right, in so so when you split with Bagwell, like you talk about how it was kind of like the the booking and everything was a bit unorganized as far as you know the time frames and, and all of those things. Did they have like a set plan for the two of you? Because I know you feuded and then Buff went off to do you know his thing with the NWO. You did your thing with the Flock. Um, but did you have like any idea of what was to come, or did they just kind of break you guys up and leave it up to you to figure out, or how did that work? Uh, well, let's see. The actual split happened, you know, they came out with the NWO. Mm-hmm. And Bischoff was going out there going, okay, all you guys on the contract, you have 30 days or else we're going to start hurting everybody. Right. However it would be. They did one week or something where nobody did anything. Can't remember how it went specifically. But then we were in Lakeland, Florida for a nitro. Bagwell and me had been doing the stuff kind of in between about us screwing up and they didn't know who they were going to turn. You know, we screwed up some matches where either I cost him or he cost me and they didn't know who was going to turn who, which way, where. And long story short, Kevin Nash and Bagwell have been friends for a long time and they actually traveled together back when Kevin was starting with the company. And so basically we were in Lakeland, Florida. I think it was like either Lakeland or Tampa, but I think it was Lakeland. And Marcus was supposed to wrestle Regal. I was going to call something happened to Marcus, and Marcus was going to lose to Regal. All of a sudden they changed that and scrapped that match entirely. And just said, uh, Marcus, match went to Marcus, said, hey, tonight's your night. You're going into NWO. So they came in, scrapped the entire show of what they were going to do with how we were going to do our thing and said, Marcus is joining the NWO. You guys already got something going here. We can play off of it. And I owe this to Marcus anyway. And this was a favor being paid back to Marcus from Kevin for them traveling together years earlier. I see. Okay. 
which I actually thought was great. I thought it was great for Marcus because, you know, me and Marcus had talked about stuff a lot because when they were thinking about spinning stuff and didn't know who they were going to turn, I kept telling Marcus, but I hope it's you because you've been doing this baby face tagging thing for so long. And yeah, it may work for you, but you at least need a chance to run on your own, especially being a heel. You know, so we talked about it, and I wanted to see him succeed. You know, we were great friends, and, you know, I was like, dude, you know, when you, when you want to see somebody who's worked their ass off get a chance to succeed, he deserved a chance to succeed. And so we basically, let's see, we did that split, and that was probably, I want to say December of 96, Okay, because I, I remember... December 96, uh, December 96 at that time. Okay. Because we went and did a two-week tour of Germany at the end of 96. And they had me and Marcus as a tag team against Public Enemy. Gotcha. It was, it was two weeks. It was a Christmas tour. And for the first... And Germany was a week behind in getting the Nitros. So Marcus hadn't turned on me yet. In Germany's mind. Gotcha. So we basically, the first week of the tour, is me and Marcus against Public Enemy. Then Marcus turned on me on the Nitro. And so what they did is they ended up switching out a match and put Eddie Guerrero as my tag team partner for the last two weeks, or for the last week of the, uh, of the tour and put Marcus against Benoit. It was Eddie against Benoit for the tour, so they really couldn't switch. Much else rather couldn't put it. Benoit and Eddie together um, to face Public Enemy and have me and Marcus face each other, which would have made sense, but they really couldn't do it at the time. So they just put me and Eddie together as a tag team and let us team against against Enemy and put Marcus against Benoit. So we did that tour there. Got back from the tour from Germany. And I remember going to Maven Fitness Single Living Gym first of the year. I was getting a workout in. And Marcus's girlfriend comes up to me and goes, Are you excited about the pay per view? I'm like, What pay per view? Oh, you're wrestling Marcus to the pay per view. This is Marcus's girlfriend at the gym telling me I'm wrestling Marcus in the pay per view. Yes, yeah, so we were getting the news from, from that I source. I didn't know anything about this. <laughs> right. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm assigned under contract talent for the company. Didn't know anything about it. Well, my my opponent's girlfriend told me at the gym that I was listening to them. All righty then. That's how much up to date that company was. Jeez. That, you know, that's... And, and so I was like, wow, okay. So we found out we're each other at the sold-out pay-per-view. So we started setting that up for a couple of weeks. Then, right after the sold-out pay-per-view, I mean, immediately the day after the sold-out pay-per-view, which was on a Saturday because the uh, Super Bowl was on that Sunday. We couldn't run against the Super Bowl on a pay-per-view. So we did that Super. We did that pay-per-view in Cedar Rapids. Me, Jericho, Scott Norton, and Bagwell flew to Chicago because we were going to New Japan for three weeks to do a three-week tour for New Japan over there. 
And for the first week, uh, two week that three-week tour, me and Marcus were together for a couple of shows, you know, as the American Males. And then they got the 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 word over of him turning on me over there. And then for the last two weeks, you know, me and Marcus wrestled against each other a couple of times over there in singles and as a team, which was actually, I look at it as, as how cool is it to have an angle that we ran for WCW in the States where we got to take our turn of the American males against each other to Japan. They wrestle against each other in Japan. To me, that was one of the coolest parts about the angle. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. Was that, this you know, was, this if, was if, New if, Japan? If you think about the logistics of that. Whether, they didn't tell the storyline, but you know, I know of it all. But just to be able to be carrying on the NWO scenario, the American males, plus, you know, me against Marcus in Japan for an entirely different company that we were working with, but for the company over there, that to me, that was so freaking cool to be able to do that. It's very and then, cool. then come back from Japan after being there for three weeks, which of course you know is getting to be the uh, the next in, in four weeks after that pay-per-view, after the slot pay-per-view, except for the pay-per-view. We get back, we have one week to set up a strap match for Uncensored. So they had me and Marcus with each other in a strap match at Uncensored. We have one week to set it up. How do we set it up? Me and Jericho wrestle each other at the spring break pay-per-view, or the spring break nitro, and Marcus comes out for no reason and starts flipping me with a belt. And what's at Jericho? And we both, you know, do whatever to make Jericho run away. And uh, all of a sudden now, because of one time, him coming out and pulling his belt off and trying to whip me with the belt, we now have a strap match. Yeah. Yeah, buddy. Jeez. Well, I mean, it was great to be involved. It was great to be in the mix of everything. And I mean, to me, it was cool that, that even though it was kind of herky-jerky rush, rush, I mean, we, we understood what we were doing, but it was still, you know, the, the, I mean, the, the planning that was involved in it had to be done. Right, and that was... We were just, we were just happy to be part of the team. Sure. You know? Sure. And that that was that was one of the questions I was going to ask you. And you already hit hit the point. I was going to ask you because you hear all these stories about how unorganized WCW was, especially towards the end of their run. And you're just kind of reaffirming everything I've ever heard. And when you were when you were in Japan, this was this was in New Japan and New Japan Pro Wrestling, yeah, it correct? Was, it was New Japan. Just like you see on Access TV now, New Japan Pro Wrestling. Yep. Always had this working relationship with them. I mean, we did the one Starcade pay per view. Uh, WCW versus New Japan, and me and Marcus were on there as the American Males. We wrestled uh, Bobby Eaton and Steve Regal, the Blue Bloods. How's that for WCW against New Japan? Yeah, you know, right. Well, hey, at least you wrestled a foreign tag team. One, one which was uh, one of the foreigners was from Huntsville, Alabama. <laughs> right. Who was uh who was booking New Japan then? It's, it's Gato nowadays, I believe. I I, I subscribe um, to their New Japan. Then, I don't know. I know uh, uh, Tiger Hattori, the referee, was one of the coolest dudes they get to know over there. And uh, Master Saito, I think Ricky Choshu was one of the bookers there. 
Gotcha. I'm thinking it was. I really can't remember who it was. All I remember is one of the last nights of the tour, sitting there, me and Snort were sitting there, and uh, I think it was Rookie Joshi walked up and shook my hand and said, Vicks, you work more old, less spot, you do fine here. Uh, I just remember hearing something of that sort. It wasn't like great, you know, long diet five or long anything. He just told me, work more holds, you'll be fine. And Norton, who wrestled with New Japan for, you know, a decade or more, goes, dude, you know how big that is? I'm like, no. Dude, it took him five years to talk to me. Oh, wow. This is your first tour over here, and he's talking to you. I said, wow. He goes, uh, he, goes he, he, he may have just gotten older, and learn to talk to more people or whatever. He goes, dude, that's pretty heavy for him to even come over and greet you. Of course, you know, we greeted him first come, but that was like the last day or next best day of the tour. So that was his way. That was kind of his way of coming over and saying, thanks, you did a great tour for us. But you work more holds, you'll be fine. Wow. That's so, awesome. And I remember Scott Norton, a big, big, tough dude. Uh, oh, I, I love Norton. He's, he's a great golfer. Oh, was he? He played golf one time, yeah. Oh, no kidding. Lex, Sting, Marcus, Norton, Sick Boy, myself, uh, Brian, uh, Brian Adams. He used to play golf. And Larry Zabisco used to play golf all the time. Randy, Rock, uh, Randy Anderson, Pee Wee, referee. We used to have, uh, you know, the six, eight of us would always go out and play golf together. Oh, that's great. That was a great way to get, you know, you're, think about it. You travel, you're in a car. You're in a hotel, you're in a gym, you're in an uh, arena, you're in a studio, you're, in, you're always in something. This is our chance to be out, outside in the sun, outside some fresh air. Played golf once with Lex uh, in Tampa on, uh, I think it was, had to be on a Tuesday, getting ready to do a Saturday night taping, because it was just me and Lex. Uh, Sting and Marcus had gone home for some reason. But it was me and Lex. We played with Pat Patterson. Uh, you know, WWE Hall of oh, Famer yeah. Pat I, Patterson. Absolutely. And his husband, Louie. And this is before I knew Pat was gay. Right. You know, I didn't know anything about it. You know, to me, it didn't matter. It didn't make any difference anyway. Right. But, you know, he got introduced to Pat. This is Louie. Hey, guys, how are you? Blah, blah, blah. Lex knew it. But they, I mean, there was no big issue out of any of it, and I didn't realize any of it, but they were, they, were, they were messing with me the whole time, which was kind of fun now that I was back at it, but at the time I had no idea what they were doing. Until he pantsed me on the, uh, on the putty green. And back then, we all wore thongs. Right. I had my, my black Zubas on. Oh, yeah, the Zubas. And a polo shirt, and Pat walks on me and pants me. So I just have a thong with Reggie, my butt cheeks. <laughs> Hanging out in Pat's guy's head that's my butt cheek going, nice. Oh, that's too funny. On a big golf on a big golf course in Tampa. So oh, that's after the fact is when I found out about Pat and it didn't make a difference to me. Sure. But to me it was just cool that Pat was relating like I was one of the boys and he was a complete legend in the business. And he still treated me like I was an equal, which was way cool. How, how extensive was his wrestling knowledge? Because I, I hear so many people credit him, Pat I Patterson. I didn't spend that much time with him. Again, it was one time on the golf course. 
and a few times around the time of where you either bump into them at the hotel where you have to be across the pass at a hotel and airport. Gotcha. But beyond that, I never really got to spend any time with Pat and discuss anything with him. I wish I could have because I know he's forgotten more than I will ever know when it comes to wrestling. All right, and that will do it for part one of this interview with Scotty Riggs. Please tune in next Wednesday, and I will have part two available. We're going to talk about him leaving WCW for ECW. We're also going to talk about his friendship with Rob Van Dam and what it was like to wrestle him when he was in ECW. We're going to talk a little bit about what it means to draw a crowd when it comes to professional wrestling events and uh, his thoughts on the new talent in the WWE and around the world in the world of professional wrestling. And we also talk about so much more. So please tune in next Wednesday for part two of my interview with Scotty Riggs. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, my handle is at N-O-W underscore W-O-R-L-D underscore O-R-D-E-R. That is at now underscore world underscore order. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and please rate and comment as well. It goes a long way. Thank you so much for listening, and from now on, you will hear Tommy Toehold, who I had on a previous podcast, this clip of him doing a Nate Diaz impression and telling you to listen to Fight Talk, so you will hear that right after this. Once again, thank you for listening, and I'll be back soon.